She's probably one of the most misunderstood figures in all the Bible. Practically deified by the Roman Catholic Church and largely ignored by most of Protestantism is Mary. Yet, she remains a key player in the most incredible drama to play itself out on the pages of human history. This uh, past week, Carol and I took the opportunity to go see that film that's playing called The Nativity Story. And uh, it was... um, It was an interesting film. There were a number of historical inaccuracies uh, within the film, some of which I understand were done for purposes of of artistic reasons. And I don't know if they ran out of time, but they compressed a number of events that I would have preferred they hadn't. But be that as it may, there was still something about the film that was uh, moving and gripping as it uh, revealed uh, the life of this young peasant girl. We are very, very used to the idea that God took on human flesh. It kind of rolls off our tongues, and so we're able to say it, but we really don't give it a whole lot of thought. The implications of what it all means, the, the incredible nature of such a notion... And so, even in that film, it was helpful, I think, to just become brought face to face again with the, with the gripping reality that when God took on human flesh, He did so through the womb of a woman, but not a woman born to royalty, but a woman born to poverty. A young girl who grew up in poverty in, the, in a backwoods village in the backside of the Roman Empire about as far as one could get from the halls of power and wealth. There, in that ignoble setting, was born the King of Kings, the Savior of the world. The the contrast could not be more striking that God would choose to step into space and time, human flesh, and to do so in the most obscure in lowly of ways. And so what I want to do with you this morning, and this is the beginning of a series of Christmas messages as we work up to the day we celebrate, is I want to begin this morning and reflect with you upon this great and grand event. And I want to do so through the eyes of Mary. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, we're going to begin in verse 26. I'd love to begin in verse 1 of Luke 1, but time will not allow that. So we will begin in verse 26. That's page 1019 if you're using a pew Bible. And let me read the text for you. We're going to focus this morning on verses 46 to 55. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. We've got to get a running start at this. I've entitled this morning's message, Mary's Song. Now in the sixth month, that would be the sixth month, by the way, of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. 
to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. We are introduced here, Luke's narrative, to this young woman, Mary, back here in verse 27. We're told that she is a virgin engaged to a man whose name is Joseph, a descendant of David. In that term, virgin, is packed a wealth of information that we probably should draw out in order to begin to understand this special lady. She's a virgin. We use that word commonly in our own language to mean a woman who has not had sexual relations with a man. And indeed, that is true of Mary. 
But in Jewish culture, it carries more to it than that. Typically, in the Jewish culture of the first century, a virgin like Mary would be a young, would refer to a young woman of marriageable age. Somewhere between the age of 12 and 13 years old. So young Mary most likely fell into that age range. Just having entered into puberty. She would be a virgin. She would now have arrived at the marriageable age and particularly born in, a, in poverty in a village on the backside of the empire. This would be the way for her to escape that poverty and to enter into marriage in a home of her own. And so this young child, we would call her Mary, is a virgin. Based on Jewish social customs, Joseph would have been older than Mary. Perhaps only a few years older. He could have been 15 or so. But it is possible he was much older than that. There are those that speculate, and it's an interesting speculation, that Joseph would have been quite a bit older than Mary. And perhaps that accounts for what appears to be his early death. For he disappears from the Gospel accounts with uh, the last statement being his appearance in the temple with Jesus when he was 12 years old. Joseph disappears from there on out. So we don't know whether Joseph was quite a bit older than Mary or perhaps only a couple of years older than Mary. But he, we're told in the Scripture, was a righteous man. Now, Mary's song where I want to focus with you this morning, so I'm going to turn you over there to verse 46 is given in response to the miraculous event that has been confirmed to her by Elizabeth. Notice uh, in verse, uh, I'll turn you back to verse 32. We're going to have to flip a little here, but notice in verse 32 that Elizabeth talks about her giving or or being uh, impregnated and and, uh, carrying within her womb the Son of the Most High. Verse 32, that's the point. The Son of the Most High. Pointing out the Most High would be God Almighty. She is carrying within her, he says, or or Elizabeth says to her, the Son of that who is one with the Most High. And we're told also it is one who's Kingship shall never end. One over in verse 43 who is referred to as my Lord. So there, Mary's song is is her response to this dramatic and miraculous event in her life. This conception has set in place a chain of events that is the decisive work of God. This will usher in the long-awaited age of peace and prosperity. This event will bring in justice and mercy. It will break the harsh rule of Satan and his dominion over this world. It will bring the fulfillment of the ancient promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so as Mary begins to gather this all up, she responds back in this song. Now, structurally, as we look at this, verses 46 through 49, 
the song moves first from Mary's individual response and God's mercy to her. The verses 50 and following where it deals with with God's response to his people in a general sense. And then verses 54 and 55 to God's covenant response to Israel. And so it begins with her own situation and then widens out as she reflects on what God has done. And there's a very real sense here in which Mary's personal deliverance that she articulates at the beginning of her song acts as a, as a, um, a picture, an illustration of God's greater deliverance that He will fan out throughout all the world. It's also important to note that this song that Mary sings of God's deliverance deals primarily in physical categories. This is not primarily and first off a song talking about what God has done for me spiritually. Yes, God has and will do spiritually for Mary amazing things, but her focus as she begins is dealing at a very physical level. And it provides an illustration for us of the, of the ultimate spiritual deliverance that does occur through her son. But her focus here is very much on a physical world. And that's important for us. You know, it should never be far from our thoughts that the promised spiritual deliverance carries real physical implications. God has given us a physical body. And it is His intention to redeem that physical body. And so Mary's response to the deliverer she carries within her own, room, her own womb is, is a very physical response. Now, let me just make it real clear on the front side so you understand what I'm saying here. And that is that a person's Economic condition, because Mary is going to speak of her poverty. A person's economic condition does not in any way grant them favor with God. God is not more inclined to someone because they are poor or more inclined to someone because they are wealthy or vice versa. But it is interesting to note. Maybe this is just a footnote here, but it is interesting to note. Scripture says and personal observation confirms that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there is some sense in which the down and out are the special recipients of the favor of God. Beloved, we are wealthy. We are a wealthy people. By all historical measures, we are the wealthiest generation of Christians ever to live. And with our wealth are carried the seeds of arrogance and self-sufficiency. And that is the exact opposite of the kind of people that according to Mary's song, Receive the mercy and the grace of God. So let's listen up together. From this passage, from this passage, we will see three amazing examples of God's mercy. So that we remember the qualifications for receiving mercy 
is to be poor and humble, not rich and proud. Let me unpack this with you with the first example beginning in verse 46. Mercy comes to a peasant girl. Mary's song, by the way, is traditionally called the Magnificat, which is a Latin translation of a Greek verb, which means to magnify or to make great or to praise or to exalt. This hymn is absolutely laced with Old Testament allusions and citations. And that in and of itself, I think, is worthy of contemplation. For if Mary indeed were a traditional Jewish virgin of 12 to 13 years old, it is amazing to me that her response to the mercy of God in her life is that she is flooded with the Old Testament. Her heart and mind were so saturated with the Word of God that when she responds back to God in praise, she speaks in the language of the Scriptures. Mary was quite a young lady. She says, verse 46, My soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. We have an example here of Jewish poetic parallelism where she says in verse 46, my soul, verse 47, my spirit. She is not attempting to identify the, the parts of man. She is speaking in a paralleled way, a poetic way. And thus, in, this, in these two verses, uh, soul and spirit are roughly equivalent to one another. And they are speaking of the, of the, the depth of her being. This is a first-person singular. From the depth of my being, I exalt the Lord and I rejoice in God my Savior. We notice also in verse 46 that the exalting is a present tense. The Verse 47, the rejoicing is a past tense or aorist tense. A point of grammar for you Greek fans. We think the aorist is an ingressive aorist, which would mean it would be better translated, my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior. And so... I think I would translate it that way. My soul exalts in the Lord. My spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior. She is responding to what God has done for her. She is not speaking here of her past life. She is speaking of the here and now in response to this amazing event in her life. And how she perceives God fulfilling the role of Savior here, verse 47, is answered in the following verses. There she speaks of why she praises Him and how she perceives Him acting as her Savior. So verse 48, the reason she exalts in God, her Savior, is because He has looked with favor upon the lowliness of her condition. Look, verse 48, He has had regard for the humble state of His bond slave. The word translated humble state here is could be translated lowliness. And in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the, that Greek word also means barrenness. Or is used to speak of barrenness. So, it is when she speaks here of her humble state, it could be that she was speaking of her barrenness. But we don't think that's true. We're talking about a 12 or 13 year old virgin. We don't think that she is now exalting in, in the, uh, or because God has had regard of her as a barren woman. And the word also can speak of someone who is in an oppressed condition. And we think that's better what she's talking about. 
She's not speaking about God having regard for her barrenness, but God having regard for the affliction of her oppression. That she has lived among a people that is under foreign domination. Back to chapter 1, verse 5, and just be reminded that all of this takes place in the days of Herod, king of Judah. Chapter 2, verse 1, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Mary is a one who lives under the oppressive rule of unrighteous men. Herod was one of the more wicked rulers of Israel. He himself was not a true Israelite. He was a pretender king. Ancient historians say that they would have rather been Herod's dog than his wife, for he slaughtered a number of his wives when he grew insanely jealous of them, killing some of his own sons as well. This was the kind of barbaric rule that Mary grew up under. A time when a tyrant in a far-off capital of Jerusalem or a greater tyrant still in a far-off capital of Rome could insist on a census that would uproot whole families and cause them to relocate back to their place of their ancestry that they might pay a tax. This was a people that she grew up amongst who was an oppressed people. A people that were squashed and driven down. And it is out of this lowly estate that she is unexpectedly saved by God and brought into favorable status. My soul exalts the Lord, she said. My spirit has begun to rejoice in God, my Savior, for He has had regard for me and my oppression. For behold, from this time, all generations will call me blessed. From this state of lowliness, from this state of oppression, Mary has now been elevated to a status of, of, of a favorable state. Right? Look again at what it says. Verse 48, From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. This message was foretold to her, chapter 1, verse 28, by Gabriel, right? The angel hailed favored one, he says. Elizabeth says to her in verse 42, Blessed are you among women and the fruit of your womb, this young girl. From Nowheresville, a family of poverty, living under immense persecution and oppression, has been elevated. Has been elevated to the status of giving birth to the King of Israel. She, among all the girls of Israel, has been chosen to bear the Messiah. God has indeed elevated her. God has indeed looked upon her humble state. Indeed, generations will count her blessed. It's no wonder she has praise for God, her Savior. She gives a second reason for us in verse 49 for her praise. She says, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Her second reason here is, I believe, based upon the miracle of the conception itself. The first praise comes from the fact that she, of all the girls of Israel, will bear the Messiah. The future king of Israel. The one who will release the nation from its bondage. The one that will rescue them from the oppression 
of Rome. She will bear that child. But beyond that, it's in a miraculous means. It's not just that she was impregnated by a son of David and in the lineage as a, as a son of David and a daughter of David that she will somehow give birth to the Davidic Messiah. It's way more than that. She is a virgin. The mechanism by which she, this great deed will be accomplished through her defies explanation. I mean... Turn back again and look at verse 35. How can this be? How did the Christ become conceived in her womb? Well, here's God's answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's kind of a mystery, isn't it? That's really, in one sense, not a very detailed explanation. It defies definition. In fact, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God, right? Because the general human response to such things is that's impossible. Impossible. God is all-powerful. He is exalted here, verse 49, in His holiness. Not speaking here about moral attributes, but His otherness. His transcendence. His otherworldliness. The great, majestic God, Yahweh, Creator of the universe, Redeemer of the nation, has come upon this young child. And in her womb now, she carries the divine Deliverer. What an act of, of condescension on God's part to come down to this young woman. I mean, why didn't He choose a queen, a princess, someone of royal and noble birth? Mary says because of this, I praise God and others will bless me. This is a mighty deed on behalf of this humble, poor, obscure woman. And then the camera of her song moves back, if you will, and it widens. She, we've had a close angle look through her song at her life and what God has done for her. And so now he pulls it back in a wide angle, or she does through her song. She broadens the scope, and she now includes generation after generation, and then ultimately the nation of Israel as a whole. And she says that God will look in the same way upon them that He has looked upon me. The favor that He has shown me, He will show to others. I am poor, I am obscure, I am humbled, and He showed me such rich favor, He will show it to those who are poor and humble and obscure. So we come to the second example here, verse 50. That is that mercy comes to the poor and the humble. And His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. The word, the Greek word here, elios, Translated mercy is used over in the Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate that rich Hebrew word hased, which speaks of God's 
faithful love, His covenant love, His graciousness, His loving kindness that He has for His people. And such gracious faithfulness characterizes God's dealings with them. Verse 50, And His chesed is upon generation after generation. That His faithfulness, His loving kindness, His mercy and His grace is poured out upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. That is, those who acknowledge Him as who He really is. His authority, His position over them, His sovereign rule. Mary is a God-fearer. Let's just say that. Mary herself is a God-fearer. She is one who acknowledges God's holy and exalted position. And she says, God has shown mercy to me. And He will show mercy to all who are God-fearers. All who humble themselves before Him. It's a transition statement here that ultimately expands to the end of the song where he, she includes all of the nation of Israel as a whole. So she speaks of the mighty deeds God has done on behalf of the God-fearers, generation upon generation of them. She uses, beginning in verse 51, you notice they're cast in the past tense. That he has done mighty deeds with his arm. Again, I think the translation is not what it could be. I'm persuaded it's what is used here grammatically is what's called a prophetic aorist, which is just means that future events are spoken of as if they are past tense because they are so certain to occur. You can find an example of such things over in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where it's spoken of things as having occurred when they are yet future. And that is because of the certainty of their occurrence. And I think that's what Mary is doing here in verse 51 through the rest of her song. She is saying, because of the event that has occurred in my life, all of what has been predicted for the future can now be spoken of as in a past tense sense, as if it had already occurred, it's so certain to come. And so she will outline the mighty deeds that will come with the rule of her child. When He brings His messianic kingdom to place, this is what it will look like. And so she uses a series of three phrases, verses 51, 52, 53. And she describes what this child's kingdom will be. Verse 51, He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. That is, when His rule comes, this is what He will do. God will scatter the proud in heart. God will scatter the proud in heart. The rule of Messiah will turn the world topsy-turvy. You know, those who see no need for God are the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, right? They don't need God. They're self-satisfied. They've got all that they need in life. They've got it pretty much wired. They have health. They have wealth. They've got places to go and things to do. And they have no time for God. They also frequently have no time for their fellow human beings. They pass through life using people. Oppressing people. Minimal compassion on their fellow human beings. These are the things that characterize those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. 
And Mary says that her child's kingdom will shatter them. It will shatter them. Just to give you an idea, I told her this whole thing is steeped in the Old Testament. Let me take you back. I won't turn you there. I'll just read it to you. A somewhat obscure verse out of Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. You can mark it down and check it on your own. We're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, aren't we? I mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, and you think about their overthrow, and you think about the reason of their overthrow. But let me just add for you a little color to that through the inside of the prophet Ezekiel, where he says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. The prophet says that amongst the transgressions of Sodom was an arrogance of heart, a haughtiness, a self-satisfied nature with the wealth that they had communicated and a misuse and abuse of the poor and the needy. And for that, God swept them away. The Messiah's kingdom will shatter the proud at heart. Secondly, Mary observes in verse 52 that He will reverse the social order. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. The history of the world is a history of oppression. It is those who have exercised rule over the masses and done so in a, in a way that is oppressive and arrogant. And Mary says that her child, when he takes his throne, will reverse that social order. That the oppressors, the, the powerful, the rich, the rulers, in her case, Rome, right? And Herod, will be cast down. The injustices of the ruling class will be no more. And God's people will be rightly treated. Beloved, these themes standard as you read through the passages of the Old Testament. God cares about the downtrodden. And He hates those in positions of authority and power who oppress them. The millennium will be a time of great peace and prosperity when social justice will finally rule and reign. He will reverse the social order. Third, verse 53, he will overturn economic oppression. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. The poor who suffer at the hands of the rich, the arrogant rich, are, are given a promise here of provision that they will be provided for. And those who think they have everything will come to find that they have nothing at all. Times of economic oppression that dominate this planet are destined to be reversed. This week, I, uh, my computer was infected with some kind of virus. It was a particularly nasty one and took our computer people half a day to isolate it and kill the thing. And as I was unable to use my computer for half a day, I thought it occurred to me on more than one occasion, why could not such ingenuity and brilliance be, tar be put to profitable use instead of the creation of some kind of 
virus that is seeking to destroy that which is good and wholesome. Beloved, think how much prosperity this planet could know if all the wealth of the nations that is focused upon their own self-aggrandizement, the building of vast militaries, the conducting of war and evil, if it were turned to that which is good. No longer would people be starving to death. Vast numbers. There's a better day coming. There is a day coming, beloved. A real day when Christ sits on His throne and He overturns the economic oppression that has characterized mankind since the fall. When He overturns the social order, when the arrogant and the haughty and those that have no need for God stand in positions of authority and the humble and the poor are under the heel of their boot. A time when He will shatter and scatter the proud at heart. Mary's child will inaugurate such a time. A time when oppression is overturned. A time when compassion and mercy prevail. A time when the poor are cared for. The downtrodden are exalted. The humble are elevated. We are citizens of that heavenly kingdom. Amen? By faith in that Messiah's work. We are citizens of His heavenly kingdom. The question that we have to ask is, are we now living our lives in a way that matches the priorities of that kingdom? Do our priorities match kingdom priorities? Or are we as a church guilty of inadvertently excluding the poor and the downtrodden because of our own ease, our own prosperity, our own arrogance. Would a poor person find a place here? If someone were to come in those doors who were of the poor classes, would they find a place here? Would it be a welcoming place? Do we really care whether they come or not? Unless we can honestly answer yes. Yes, we care. And yes, they would find a place. Then we find ourselves as a church standing in opposition to the very will of God. That which He wants to do. That which He said He will do. That which Mary 2,000 years ago in her song can consider as a done deal, a completed event. Because she's so steeped the Scriptures. She so knows the heart and mind of God. She knows that this is what the child will bring. Third, she says that mercy will come to a desperate nation. Mercy will come to a desperate nation. Verse 54. He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She's continuing here in the prophetic aorist mode. 
She's speaking of things that are yet to come as if they have already occurred. She's looking forward to the time when that baby in her womb will fulfill that which God has promised to her people. She is looking for a spiritual deliverer for sure. Genesis 3.15 is the ancient promise, right? That the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. She is looking for the spiritual deliverer. There's no doubt about that. But she is also looking for the great Davidic king. The one who will usher in his kingdom. The kingdom that was foretold by the prophets so long ago. If you think I'm reading something into that text, you need to turn back to verses 32 and 33 and just listen to what the angel Gabriel said to her. He will be great, she said, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 of a perpetual kingdom in which one of his sons will sit on the throne is embodied here in this baby in her womb. She's looking for a time when the nation of Israel will no longer suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. You know, if you fast forwarded, we won't turn there, but you can mark it down. Luke 21, 24. Jesus calls it the times of the Gentiles. Israel lives in the time of the Gentiles. That is, when the nation is under the heel of Gentile domination. She's looking for the time when the fullness of the blessing of God will come. When the nation will embrace their, their Messiah. When the Gentile rule over the nation, over the people of Israel will be put down. When Israel will once again be restored to a place of ascendancy. Which will not come, Jesus said, until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? They rejected her son. But they won't forever. Zechariah 12.10, they will look on Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. The day is coming, beloved. The day is coming for the nation of Israel when the promises to the fathers will be fulfilled. When the nation repents and turns to embrace the child of Mary's womb. She can ground her certainty of hope on His promise to Abraham. You see it? Verse 55. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She knows the promise of Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is real and eternal. The Abrahamic covenant can never be violated. It can never be set aside. And so again and again through the history of the nation, he has repeated his promise to the fathers. Micah chapter 7, verse 20, And you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. This little girl is steeped in her Bible. She knows it. She knows God is faithful, a man, that God keeps his word. She knows that in her belly is the embodiment of it all. Beloved, Christmas is a time for joyful celebration. God has given us His own Son. 
to atone for our sin, to cover our guilt, to make us acceptable in His sight, and to grant us His righteousness that we might be perfect in the Beloved by faith. But it's also a time of sober reflection. God sent His Son into the world, but when He sent Him in, He chose the most lowly, the most poor, the most humble of circumstances. He sent Him to a little girl raised in an obscure home, in an out-of-the-way village, in a remote part of a distant land on the backside of the Roman Empire. Because He wanted to communicate something for all time. And that is that He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The question I want to leave you with this morning So when God sent His Son, He chose the poor, the humble, to receive that great gift. Do you have time in your life? Is there time in your Christmas activities for ones such as these? How we answer that question reveals a lot about the state of our own soul. Let me pray. Our Father, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Lest any man should boast. We are completely and totally dependent upon You. And You have worked a mighty work of grace in our lives. Tearing away the blinders of unbelief. That we might see the Savior in all His glory. And that we might love Him and embrace Him. But our Father, we confess that our love for Him and our embracing of Him is far from perfect. That there remains within our hearts the residual seeds of sin that nag at us. Our Father, we confess as well that in our busyness and prosperity, that there is a segment of our society that we overlook. We do not love as we would like to be loved. We do not fulfill the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive us at this time, Lord, for the arrogance of our hearts, for the self-sufficiency, for the complacency, Spark within us compassion for the downtrodden. A compassion that would motivate us to seek them out. That they might know the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet beyond that, that we could meet their physical needs too. Lord, I pray that You would work in this body to transform us the image of Jesus Christ. We ask in His name. Amen.